Let's open our Bibles to Merlane was reading for us Psalm 142. We are making our way through God's Word, and we've been doing that chapter by chapter and verse by verse, almost through with the Psalms, a couple more weeks, and we'll have them cracked out. Psalm 142 is seven verses long. The significance of this prayer that I want to point out as we get started is where it is written, it's in the cave where he writes Psalm 142. So let's read that together this morning. I cried out to the Lord with my voice, and with my voice to the Lord I made my supplication. And I poured out my complaint before him, I declared before him my trouble. And when my spirit was overwhelmed within me, then you knew my path in the way in which I walked. They have secretly set a snare for me. Look on my right hand and see, for there is no one who acknowledges me. Refuge has failed me. No one cares for my soul. I cried out to you, O Lord. I said, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. And deliver me from my persecutors, for they are stronger than I. Bring my soul out of prison, that I may praise your name. The righteous shall surround me, for you shall deal bountifully with me. As we look at this psalm and as I studied for it this week, I was amazed. One of the things uh, that struck me is uh, the age of David when he penned Psalm 142. He is obviously on the run from Saul. And um, when I laid this all out and tried to figure out the timeline and the chronology of all this, it was extremely interesting because it, uh, we find David um, starting in scriptures at about the age of 15. As he's writing Psalm 142, uh, he will have been on the run from Saul for going on four years and another four years hiding in the city of Ziglag. But here's what, here's what struck me about David is his age. He was between the ages of 22 and 30 when he wrote most of these psalms. He was on the road from one place to the next, and it was there that in, in these times of difficulty that he penned many of the psalms that we're writing. David spent seven years in Saul's palace before Saul tried to kill him. And then he was hunted by Saul for those four years. And again, as I said earlier, another four years in the city of Ziglag. That is until Saul is killed on the mountains of Gilboa. These eight years can be broken down into two sets of four. Again, the first four running from Saul, and then the second four in the city of Ziglag. Again, I've entitled this, it's written in the cave. Uh, maybe your subtitle under 142 says the same as mine does. Um, and it begs the question, well, which cave? And the answer is I don't know. But let me throw out two. I'll put them on the map for you. The first one is the cave of Adullam. And we'll put that up on the screen for you this morning and show you that particular cave. Adullam, when he first took off, is where he ended up. And about 400 men uh, came to him, all who were in distress, all who were in debt, and all who had troubles. They all came and, and uh, hung out with David in this place called Adullam. Uh, it could be that that's where this was written. I personally lean more towards the other possibility, and that is En Gedi. And I'll show you where that is. En Gedi is right on the... Um, uh, the Dead Sea is an oasis, absolutely beautiful place for those of you who have been to En Gedi. It has a waterfall there. It has little animals called coonies, big ground squirrels, and of course the wild ibex or the wild goats. That was 3,000 years ago. And uh, when we go there this November, there's never been a time that I haven't seen uh, the wild goats after still these 3,000 years. So there's the possibility of where these would have been written. Um, Saul is after David, and um, it's during this time 
and again, between the ages of 22 and 30, David began ruling in Jerusalem as king at the age of 30. So that's why we know it was between 22 and 80. David in Psalm 142, if the bottom line would be here, he looks to the Lord, he lays it all out to the Lord, and he doesn't look to get his help from men. And that's what we want to really latch on to this morning as we get into this. But let's follow the timeline. And I want you to turn, if you would please, to 1 Samuel chapter 16. I'll give you a moment to get there. And um, Saul had been called as the first king of Israel. He was to take care of the Amalekites. And he failed to obey the Lord, so the Lord rejected him as being king. And he began to look for another king to replace Saul. And so as you look at 1 Samuel chapter 16, we have that famous story where uh, Samuel is told to go to the house of Jesse, and from one of Jesse's sons would be the next king of Israel. And he was to anoint with oil, symbolically that he is now anointed as the next king of Israel. So let's pick it up in verse 11. Samuel has come in, Jesse's a little on edge, having a prophet of God come to, to his house there in Bethlehem. What do, you, what, do you, what do you want? What are you doing here? He says, Jesse, don't worry, I'm, I'm coming in peace. I've come here to anoint one of your sons, the next king of Israel. And he says, what shall it be? And from the oldest to the youngest, the past, verse 10 said, Jesse made his Seven of his sons passed before Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen any one of these guys. Then Samuel said to Jesse, verse 11, Are all the young men here? And they said, Well, there, there remains the youngest, and he's out keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and bring him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. So he sent and he brought him, and now David was Rudy. He had bright eyes, he was good looking, and the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is the one. So then Samuel took the horn of oil and he anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord, notice this, came upon David from that day forward. And so Samuel arose and went to Ramah. Now verse 14, the spirit of the Lord came on David But the spirit of, verse 14, but the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and a distressing spirit from the Lord troubled him. At this moment in time, there's a new king in Israel, but it's going to be seven years plus another eight years that before that actually happens. So even though uh, the anointing of the Lord was on David from this moment on, The anointing was taken off of Saul from this moment on. We still have this time where for seven years, David is going to be in the service in the palace in Jerusalem. Um, Let's pick it up and read down to verse 23. Saul's servant said to him, Surely a distressing spirit from God is troubling you. Let your master now command your servant who are before you to look for a man who is a skillful man on the harp. And a skillful player, and it shall be when he plays with his hand that the disturbing spirit from God is upon you, and you shall be well. So Saul said to his servant, provide for me now a man who can play well. Bring him to me. And one of the servants answered and said, look, I've seen this son of Jesse from Bethlehem. He's talented. He's skillful in playing. He's a mighty man of valor. Uh, He's prudent in speech. We're going to come back to that. He's a handsome guy, and the Lord is with him. I mean, his resume was packed as far as uh, this was concerned. And therefore Saul sent for Jesse and said to his son David, who was with the the sheep, and Jesse took a donkey loaded with bread and skin and wine and a young goat and sent him with David to Saul. So David came to Saul and stood before him, and he loved him greatly, and he became his armor bearer. And then Saul said to Jesse, saying, Please let David stay with me, 
for he has found favor in my sight. And so it was whenever the spirit from God was upon Saul that David would take a harp and play it with his hand. Then Saul would become refreshed and well, and the disturbing spirit would depart from him. These are the early days as we look at the timeline that's going to lead up to the cave. It begins with Samuel anointing David king, taking that anointing from Saul, and yet the Lord, (laughs) talk about a divine appointment, who can we bring in that can soothe the king? Well, it happens to be David from Bethlehem. Now, let's turn to chapter 18, and we have some time that has passed. Um, Oh, let's pick it up. Again, I'm going to tell you that a seven-year period of time My guess is that David was about 15 years old, uh, as I do the math, uh, when Samuel came to him in Bethlehem. But um, as time goes on, here we have this extremely gifted, good-looking, talented musician, mighty man of valor, and to have all that on top of it, the Lord is with him. And so we have little by little this change where David is being elevated And it's really getting under Saul's skin. And so we pick it up, uh, verse 5 of uh, chapter 18. We can pick it up in verse 6. Now it happened as they were coming home, David was returning returning from the slaughter of the Philistines that that the woman came out of the city and they were singing and dancing, uh, sort of a homecoming type situation. And they had this song that they had made up. Saul has killed his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Well, Saul could not handle that. He could not handle anyone receiving more accolades than himself. And so he became angry. It displeased him, verse eight. And he says, they've ascribed David 10,000 and to me they've only ascribed 1,000. Not what more can he have except the kingdom? So now he's paranoid. Many of the kings of Israel, especially Herod, uh, was paranoid of those who might be after his, his kingdom. And, uh, and history tells us he didn't want to be a friend of Herod because he was taking him out right and left if he had any suspicions at all. And that's what David says in verse 9, so Saul eyed David from that day forward. Now, in verse 10 through 16, We have, he's had enough, and he wants to take David out. And verse 10, it happened on the next day that the distressing spirit from God came upon Saul. And he prophesied inside the house. And so David played music with his hands, like other times. But there was a spear in Saul's hand. I can just see Saul just sitting there, seething. He's got a spear in one hand, and he's looking at David and... and, uh, and all of a sudden he snaps. And David cast a spear, for he said, I will pin David to the wall with it. But David escaped his presence twice. I'll show you the other place in just a minute. And Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. Therefore Saul removed him from his presence and made him captain over a thousand. See, he's still in the palace, uh, but not playing music so much, not that closeness that was there. And he went out and he came in before the people. So David would go out to war and come back. He'd come, he'd go. But I want you to notice verse 14. It says, David behaved wisely in his ways because the Lord was with him. Therefore, when Saul saw that he behaved wisely, he was even more afraid of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David because he went in and came out uh, before them. Little sidetrack here. David's in a position, really hasn't done anything wrong, just following orders, uh, exercising the gifts that God has given to him, and all of a sudden he's got a guy throwing spears at him. So my question for you this morning is, as we think about the application, is how do you behave when people throw spears at you? And the answer is, hopefully like David, you behave wisely. But uh, let me stress the point here. 
and let you know that um, nobody in the Christian faith is uh, going to escape those times of having spears thrown at them. And um, Paul, in Ephesians chapter 6, talking about putting on the whole armor of God, uh, the shield of faith and so forth, it says in verse 16, he says, above all, make sure you take the shield of faith. Why? Which is able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. And they can manifest themselves in different ways. So the idea that we have an enemy, yes, sometimes it can take human form like a Saul, who literally is after you. And, but primarily, um, it's demonically inspired. There was a distressing spirit. I don't think it was the Holy Spirit. It was a distressing spirit that would uh, trouble Saul. So let's go to chapter 19, which takes it a step farther. And he couldn't do it, so now he tells his servants and David's best friend and Saul's oldest son, Jonathan, verse 1, 19. Now Saul spoke to Jonathan and his son and all of his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. Um, This is making the rounds right now, so it wasn't in my notes, and I didn't think about it till now, but I'll address it. Um, There are those in the homosexual community that are making a big deal about David and Jonathan. I mean, there's even a new Bible that's been written that goes out of its way to explain that David and Jonathan were homosexuals. Well, that's crazy, because uh, David had uh, two wives, and his love and the, uh, their, ad, ad, uh, ad, their ability to admire one another. Well, I could say, listen, I love Chuck Smith so much because, just because of his faith and his love for the Lord. And I can say, I love that man. There's people in his church, brothers in his church, that I can walk right up to him and say, I love you, man, and I, and I mean it. But that's the end of it, and it's the, to, to imply otherwise is blasphemous. Somebody want to give me an amen on that? But you need to know, on the cutting edge today, they're trying to find places in the Bible to rationalize and justify their position uh, as David and Jonathan being homosexuals. That's crazy. Nothing less than crazy. They had a mutual love and respect, David, for Jonathan because he had mighty acts of faith by himself, and Jonathan for David because David saw the hands Lord, the hand of the Lord on this guy's life. So the love here is, is completely one of respect and loyalty and honor and admiration, one for the other. All right, that wasn't in my notes, so you get that for free this morning, and we'll continue on. As we go on to verses 8 through 10, it said that Saul tried to do this two times to him, um, and verse, chapter 19, verse 8, it says there was war again, and David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a mighty blow, and they fled before David. And now that same distressing spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with a spear in his hand, and David was playing music with his hand. And Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he slipped away from his presence He drove the spear into the wall, and so David fled, and he escaped that night. And the rest of this um, chapter is really dealing with David's beginning of his flight and uh, where he runs to. Um, It's interesting that it happened a second time. And let, let me drive the point home even further. You know, the devil will slander you. The devil will try to literally take you out. And if he's not successful the first time, question, do you think he's going to give up? Let me remind you of Luke chapter 4, when the Lord, after 40 days, the spirit of was upon him. He was in the wilderness, and the devil came to him and tempted the Lord in every area. And you all know that the Lord put him in his place, uh, rebuked him, said, Thou shalt worship the Lord, and him only shalt thou worship. 
But then, and the very last thing it says, after the temptations were ended, verse 13, and when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. We also read in Revelation 12 about the devil. So that great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world, He was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. Now this is in the middle of the tribulation period, which means that's where he is right now, just like with Job. And he ragged on Job because Job was a godly man. He wanted Job. The Lord came to Peter, said, Peter, Satan's after you. He wants to sift you like wheat. And uh, he says, but I've prayed for you, Peter. And now we read that there's a time coming when the Lord is going to say enough, and it happens to be in Revelation twelve ten, it says, now salvation and the strength and the kingdom of God and his power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of the brethren who accused them before God day and night has been cast down. Gang, I just want us all to be aware that um, the next time, and it will happen, um, we're Sometimes the enemy will influence human beings to be his instrument, as in Saul's case. Next time people or the enemy begin throwing spears, here's my advice from looking at the life of David. Duck. Duck. And then what? Behave wisely. I think many times an enemy just wants to draw us in and get a conversation going. My Bible says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. If you don't give him something to talk back about, there's a proverb that says, take the wood off the fire and the fire will go out. Amen? So as we live our spiritual lives, we're not to be ignorant of our enemy's devices because he won't give up. And let me just tell you this, the bigger of a target that you are, a Job or a Peter or a David, You become a marked person. And as a result, you become the focal point of the enemy's attack, of the enemy's slander. And he's been doing it, he's been studying human nature for 6,000 years. He's got us down pretty well. But David, I like this, do as David did. Well, what did David do? Well, this is what he did. He wrote Psalm 142 in the middle of all this. Verse two, it says, I poured out my complaint before him. I declared before him my trouble. It's just like we're not to pretend it's not there. Of course it's there. Of course you have to deal with it. The question is, how do you deal with it? The answer is, like David, behave wisely and give it to the only one who can really help you anyway. And then in verse six it says, attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are stronger than I. Let's go to 1 Samuel chapter 24, a couple chapters ahead, where now David is clearly in either the cave of Adullam, in this case it's a cave that's at En Gedi, and here the Lord gives him the perfect opportunity to retaliate against the one who is after him. Let's read uh, verses 1 through 13. Now it happened... When Saul had returned from following the Philistines, that it was told him, saying, Take note, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. And then Saul took 3,000 chosen men of Israel and went to seek David and his men on the rocks of the wild goats. They're still there to this day. And so he came to the sheepfold by the road, and there was a cave, and Saul went in to attend to his needs. I'm glad the Bible is tactful. David and his men were staying in the recesses of the cave. What are the chances? Zero to none. There's a lot of caves. I've been in Getty many times. Then the men of David said to him, well, obviously this is the Lord. Talk about our divine appointment. This is the day which the Lord said to you, behold, I will deliver your enemy into your hands that you may do to him as seems good to you. And David arose and secretly cut off the corner of Saul's robe. I'd give anything to see this one. David crawling up, sneaking up, getting a piece of that robe, cutting it off with a knife, and Saul has no clue what's happening. 
And it happened afterwards that David's heart troubled him because he had cut Saul's robe. It wasn't the respect that he had for Saul. It's the respect that he had as Saul still being the king of Israel. And that's why his conscience was bothered. And he said to his men, the Lord forbid me that I should do this thing to my master. The Lord's anointed to stretch out my hand against him seeing that he has anointed of the Lord. Now, our understanding of the Spirit coming upon David and going from Saul is all written down for us, so we have a clear understanding of it. David, however, doesn't see the full picture like we do. And so his respect is is, um, for the king as of Israel. So David restrained his servants with these words, and did not allow them to rise against Saul. And Saul got up and came from the cave, and he went on his way. And so he could have uh, taken Saul out, but verse 6 I want to emphasize, not by my hand. The Lord is going to deal with him. I'm going to give him to the Lord. And let me mention this several times. There's only one way that this can happen, guys and gals, and that is you have to have faith in your God, that he is able, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Now, we either believe that, right, or we don't. If I ask everybody here, do you believe that? Everybody say, amen, I believe that. Well, what about when you're tested and you're tried and the darts are flying? What do you do? Do you rationalize? Do you justify? Do you try to explain your position away? Or you say, no, you know, my Bible says vengeance is the Lord's. He'll take care of it. And um, I think I'll write Psalm 142 instead in this cave and pour out my heart completely and totally to the Lord. And that's what he did here. And so four years, I think of this time from 22 to 30, that we have these beautifully rich Psalms as David is being poured from one place to the next place. He's on the run from Saul. But pouring out of him are these beautiful psalms that he cries out. And then the last four years in, in Ziglag. All right, our application so far is simply this. David shows us how to use our faith. He takes things to the Lord. Yes, he's in a cave. But he's not feeling sorry for himself. Yes, he wants to be delivered, obviously, from his persecutors. He does. But the reason is interesting to me when I look at this psalm carefully, why he wants to be delivered. While he's on the run, he's afraid. What he's used to is being a free spirit and coming and going when he wants to and plays his guitar when he feels like it. And he wants to play to the Lord. And so we read in Verse 142, verse 6 and 7. Deliver me from my persecutors. They're stronger than I. Bring my soul out of prison. You could replace that word with cave. That I may, what? Praise your name. The righteous shall surround me, for you shall deal bountifully with me. So all the reason is I I want my freedom back. I want my soul back. And I don't want to be afraid, Lord, because I want to be able to praise you. And so here we have David, doing it the right way. And now I want to take you to another man of God who also ended up in a cave. And to go there, I need to have you turn to 1 Kings chapter 18. So we're going ahead a little bit from Samuel into the kings. During the time of King Ahab and Jezebel, Elijah is the prophet at this time. And I'll just read a couple of verses and, and then explain uh, this chapter 18 of second of 1 Kings here. On our uh, second day in Israel, um, we make our way up to, um, we drive up the Mediterranean and uh, we'll, uh, we'll stop in Netanya sometimes or stay in Netanya. And then we'll make our way up to, to Mount Carmel which has this beautiful view overlooking the whole valley of Megiddo. And you can stand on there and you can look across and you can see Nazareth and um, across this valley. It's where the battle 
of Armageddon will happen someday. But it's a beautiful vista. And this is where Jezebel had married Ahab, but in doing so, she was responsible for bringing idolatry into the land of Israel. And it's even an allegorical type when you read in the book of Revelation with the church of Thyatira. He makes mention of Jezebel who brought in spiritual idolatry. Well, what does that mean? Well, they were given God's word and God's covenants. Jezebel brought in the worship of Baal, and thus we call it spiritual fornication, and, and, uh, as Jesus is writing to the church of, of um, uh, Thyatira. So here, let's pick it up in verse 20. Um, big showdown, big powwow on top of Mount Carmel. Ahab gathered all the prophets together, 450 of them, of Baal. Elijah came and all the people and said, how long will you falter between two opinions? Uh, Two ways, the ways of Baal or the ways of the Lord God of Israel. And there is no other way. That's why the Lord says the way is narrow. Few be that find it. It's difficult. There's no other name under heaven whereby you can be saved except the, the Lord Jesus Christ. You can't falter between the two. Um. He says, if Baal is God, then follow him. But if the people answered him, not a word. He gave him a choice. If the Lord's Lord, follow him. If Baal's God, follow him. And everybody sits there and doesn't say a word. And Elijah says, okay, tell you what. How about if we pray? Uh, They can pray to Baal, and I'll pray to the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, that's the one we'll worship. Everybody looked at each other and said, sounds like a plan. Let's do it. So they built two altars. And it tells us here that um, they built an altar and and, um, put a stone altar, uh, dug ditches around around one of them, and and, uh, Elijah was gracious, says, go ahead, you guys, call upon your God. And it says that they cried out all morning long, oh, Baal, hear us, and there was no voice, no answer, And they leaped on the altar. They got really charismatic about the whole thing. They cut themselves, made a loud noise. Finally, Elijah resorts to sarcasm. He says, well, maybe he's on vacation. Who knows? Maybe maybe he's using the restroom or taking a shower. And he's being extremely sarcastic with these guys. And, And so verse 29, midday was passed. They prophesied until the time of the offering, and no one paid attention. And then Elijah in verse 30 says, you guys, come on over here. And he prepared the altar of the Lord, took 12 stones, and um, he called the word of the Lord saying, Israel shall be your name. And he builds this altar, he builds a trench around it, and um, he puts wood on it, and then he douses it with four pots of water, and um, He put the burnt sacrifice on the wood. He said, now do it again. More water, pour it on a second time. Verse 36, it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known that this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant, And I have done all the things at your word. Hear me, O Lord, that this people may know that you're the Lord God and you have turned their hearts back to you again. End of prayer. Less than 30 seconds. And those guys were going at it all day long. Fire from the Lord came, consumed the burnt offering, the wood, the stones, the dust, licked up the water in the trenches, And when the people saw it, they fell on their face and said, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. And Elijah says, you take those 450 people of Baal, seize them, and let's go down to the brook Kishron. You know, it's still there to this day. We could actually stand on the the, the platform on top and we can point down. There's There's a... an uh, Air Force runway just in front of it, but I said the creek is still there after all these years. That's where the damage was done by Elijah. 
And we would call that, what I would call that, is a mountaintop experience. Somebody want to give me an amen on that? <laughs> well, I mean, calling fire out of heaven and uh, it licking up even the water that's there. You know, you're flying pretty high after being used by the Lord in such a mighty way. Well, it's interesting to me, and I, th- I find in the scriptures almost without exception, that after mountaintop experiences comes times of testing and uh, trial. So, chapter 19, verse 1 through 3 says, Ahab told Jezebel, and also what that he had executed all the prophets with the sword. And then Hillary, uh, Jezebel went, I always get that mixed up, sent um, a messenger to Elijah saying, so let the gods do to me and more also, if I do not make your life as a life of one by tomorrow about this time, I'm gonna take you out, Elijah. And the thing of it was, it freaked Elijah out. Our president is telling us to back off right now on two issues. He's saying we need to speak less about the sins of our society. Unless you don't understand what I'm saying, I'm talking about homosexuality. And he's telling us to back off. And um, how can we back off? Elijah, unfortunately, does here. And um, as we see our nation now before the before the Supreme Court is becoming an issue. And uh, Christians are asking the question as we see the inevitable writing on the wall. Where are we going to stand when it comes here? Or maybe some other place. And ultimatums are given of what we can and can't say. It can be easily classified as hate speech or whatever. And the question at that time comes, where do you stand? Hopefully with Peter and John, when they said, you can't do this anymore... And they said, well, I'm sorry that you feel that way, but we must obey God rather than man. Somebody want to say amen at that? And it's going to come to that, so you might as well hear it now because that's where things are pointed. It's at the Supreme Court right now. Unless I get too sidetracked here, let me just say that he went from a mountaintop experience to verse 4 where he wants to die. I mean, this is the next day. And he went a day's journey and he prayed that he might die. He said, it's enough. Now, Lord, take my life. I'm no better than my father's. Well, Elijah, who said you were? Nobody. He just wants to die. He's having a hard time. Pressure is being put on him. He is on the run from Jezebel, just as David was on the run from Saul. It's interesting. Interesting that he ends up in a cave in verse 9. And let's read it. And picking it up with verse 9. And it, it says that there he went into a cave and spent the night in that place. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, What are you doing here, Elisha? And he said, Well, I've been very zealous for the Lord of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenants, torn down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword. I'm the only one left, and they seek to take my life. And uh, he's having a pity party. I'm the only guy. Woe is me. He's in his cave. He's in his hole, and he's feeling sorry for himself. I'm the only one who's serving God. And then the Lord said, Come on out here and stand before the mountain, Elijah. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and a strong wind tore the mountain and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake, 6.7 maybe, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, there was a still, small voice. And Elijah goes, I know that voice. I've been having this pity party here. He's in his cave. He's depressed. He wants to die. Guys, there's going to be times when you're in your cave. You're going to be depressed. You're going to want to die. Why live? What's the purpose of living? Uh, Jezebel wants my neck. I want to die. And so when the Lord gets his attention... He's drawn out 
The Lord, the Lord drew him out of the cave with a still small voice. And so Elijah wraps his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. And suddenly a voice came to him a second time and said to Elijah, what are you doing here, Elijah? You know, when you're not answered the first time to the Lord, he comes back and gets your attention when you're on, on the lamb or on the run. And he seeks to draw you out. And as he does, he comes out and it's the same old, same old. Oh, I've been very zealous for the Lord of hosts because the children of Israel and they've forsaken your covenants, tore down your altars, killed your prophets. I'm the only one left. And they seek to take my life. I'm, if I'm the Lord, say, I just heard that before, Elijah. And basically what the Lord says next is, all right, I understand the situation. And basically what he's saying to Elijah's Pity party is enough already with the pity party, Elijah. Get to work. Get busy. Get your eyes off yourself. I've called you to do a job. Do it. So we find in verse 15, Elijah, go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, I want you to anoint Hazael as king over Syria. Then you'll anoint Jehu, the son of Nish. Uh, Nimshai as king over Israel, and Elisha the son of Shaphat of Abel, you shall anoint a prophet in your place. And it shall be that whoever escapes the sword of Hazael, Jehu will kill, and whoever escapes the sword of Jehu, Elisha will kill. And by the way, Elijah, thinking you're the only one, I have reserved 7,000 that you don't even know about. All those who have not bowed to Baal, and every month have not kissed, and with their mouth have not kissed him. You're not alone. I have my people, and I know, I know who they are. All right, let's see if we can begin to tie these dots and bring them together. Two men, both end up in caves, both on the run. Both deal with the situation very, very differently. When David was in the cave, he wrote Psalm 1, 42, and we have it for us today. That's what he did. He completely and totally sought the Lord and did not like to get his help from men. It wasn't that he didn't want the situation to be taken care of. He did, but he went to the only one who could really help him. And in time, the Lord took the seven years at 815 until he was 30 that the word of the Lord came to pass that he was the king of Israel, but it came to pass. On the other hand, with Elijah, has a mountaintop experience, but has this pity party in the cave. As David went to the Lord, here it was necessary for the Lord to come to Elijah. He still came because he loves him. And here's the application, guys. Um, when you're in that place, and you're gonna be there from time to time, going in and going out of caves and how we learn as we're growing as Christians how to deal with it. Just as Jesus will come after you with his still small voice when you're having your hard time, and he'll, he'll draw you out. He will seek you out and bring you out of your cave. Jesus said in Luke 15, what man of you having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the 90 and 9 in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it. Elijah was God's man, and he was in the cave, and so the Lord went after him. Powerful, dramatic way, earthquakes, fire, lightning, the whole thing. But he revealed himself in a still, small voice, and he says, remember why I called you, Elijah? Let's get to work. Finish, finish well. I got, this is what I want you to do. Go and do it. And so he does. In closing, a couple of things. Number one, when the fiery darts or the spears are flying, act wisely. Like David, call on the Lord. Let the Lord fight your battles. This is what it's going to take. It's a test. We're told that the, the testing or trying of our, our faith is um, uh, very, very normal. It's like fire uh, purifying gold. You put it in the fire for a while so that you'll come forth more like the Lord when the process is done. Now, every one of us will 
eventually end up in some sort of a cave sooner or later. You do one or two things. You can do like David and uh, do Psalm 142. Or you can be like Elijah and, and have a pity party. In Psalm 112, verse 7, when these times come, we need to be steadfast because that's what the scriptures tell us as believers to be, be steadfast. Psalm 112, verse 7, he will not be afraid of evil tidings because his heart is steadfast in trusting in the Lord. 1 Corinthians 15, I'm going to have you turn to that one as we close this morning because I want you to see it all. 1 Corinthians 15, and I'm just going to read verse 58. He's sort of winding up the chapter called the resurrection chapter, order of events of the resurrection. What's going to happen when we die as we get these new bodies, be transformed, be like the Lord? We call it the resurrection chapter. And at the end of it, in verse 58, he says, therefore, because there is a resurrection, because you are going to get a new body, because this, is as, this planet here is as bad as it's going to get. And we've got a glorious hope. He says, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. And know this, that your labor in the Lord is not in vain that this is actually counting for something as you serve him. Now, I completely changed the end of my study this morning because I got up and I read Wisdom for Today. And I thought, what a perfect way to close this morning. For those of you who, uh, like myself, like to read Pastor Chuck's daily devotion for May 31st, 2015, this is what it said. We're, we're in Jeremiah, uh, men's prayer on Saturday morning. It happens to be in Jeremiah right now. And he's talking about Moab. It's Jeremiah 48, 11. He said, Moab has been at ease from his youth. He has settled on his dregs and has not been emptied from vessel to vessel, nor has he gone into captivity. Therefore, his taste remains in him and his scent has not changed. And here's Chuck's comment on Moab. Moab, situated as they were in wine country, would have understood this analogy very well. When making wine, they put the juice of the grapes in large jars. As the juice is fermented, the dregs or legs would settle to the bottom. Then they'd pour the wine from jug to jug, always leaving as much of the sediment as possible in the bottom of the previous jug. In this way, they would produce pure wine. However, If they waited too long and the wine settled in the dregs, it began to rot. That rotting taste and smell would permeate the flavor of the whole jug. Moab had settled in its dregs and become rotten. A life of ease with no conflicts or disturbances had spoiled and weakened him. When God sees that we have begun to settle in on our leaves, tolerating evil and compromise, we often begin to pour us, he often begins to pour us from vessel to vessel. He brings disruption, he unsettles us so that our lives will not take on the taste of this world. We don't like being poured from jug to jug. Disruption is unsettling and uncomfortable, but it serves an important purpose. Disruption not only purifies us, but it also brings us back to our knees where we have a closer relationship with our Father. And when I read that this morning, I thought, how true with David. He's in this cave for one while, on the run for four years, and then he's in Abdullah, and then he's in En Gedi, then he's in Ziglag. What's going on here? Well, the Lord is pouring him from vessel to vessel. Well, what is it producing in him? Only the most beautiful psalms that you'll ever run across. As he teaches us how when we're in the cave being poured from one, he's not settling in. Now, what's really interesting to me is that David, if you chart his life, it's like this for the first 20 years. And then we have the Bathsheba incident. 
And from there on in, it says when the kings began to go out to war, David didn't go anymore. He got out of the fight. And instead of being poured from vessel to vessel like it was in his early days, you know, he stayed at the palace and kicked back. And when he kicked back in the palace, what happened? Well, he ran into Bathsheba. And, uh, and I, I just see the importance as we, we look at disturbing situations, we go, oh, no, not another cave experience. Maybe like Paul, we'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll look at them a little differently if we understand what Pastor Chuck is trying to explain to us here this morning, the importance, the necessity of being poured from vessel to vessel so that it brings us to a place where we're looking to and calling on the Lord, exercising, if you will, our faith. And we have a term physically, use it or lose it, right? Well, it's the same with your faith. The Lord will put you in a place where maybe spears are being thrown or whatever. What are you gonna do? Well, you can write Psalm 142 or you can uh, have a pity party. It really is a part of the learning, learning process. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and we'll close this morning. Lord, we thank you for your word as we make our way through the Psalms. Lord, thank you for David and uh, the example that, that he is to us and for us. Lord, help us to count it all joy uh, when we fall into different trials and temptations. Your word tells us not to think it strange when our faith is tested as though some strange thing is happening. We thank you that you allow uh, the cave experiences in our life. Lord, we pray as we study your word that we would be more like David. And yes, um, we want to be delivered. But Lord, we want you and not man to be our deliverer. So we thank you this morning for your word, and I just pray for your people this week. I would pray especially for any that are in the cave right now and are not sure what to do or exactly how to do it. Lord, come to them with your still small voice and call them and uh, refresh them as you went after the leaving the 90 and 9 and just went after that one and sought them out and brought them back to the fold. Thank you for your word, Jesus. In your name I pray, amen.